What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Welcome back to the Pivot Podcast, everybody. I am really excited and grateful to be talking today with Dr. Michael Consuelos, who I was very fortunate to meet through my private momentum community for heart-based solopreneurs and small business owners. He was somebody who, from the day he joined at the end of last year, has just added tremendous value, wisdom, encouragement, and perspective at every single step and call and workshop including a live Zoom with his dog Atticus at one point. Michael is here today. We're going to talk about pivoting around, during, and through a pandemic. How do we handle this? How do we stay calm? How do we work in such a different way? We'll primarily focus on the business aspects, whether it's you're a large organization, a manager or an executive leading a team through this, or an employee or entrepreneur who's figuring out how do you adapt and stay afloat during times like these. I'll read a little more of his bio in a minute, but first, Michael, welcome to the show. Jenny, thank you so much. I am really excited to have you here, and you were so great to reach out. I think I mentioned this on one of our private Q&A calls, and you reached out and just said, if there's anything I can do to help. And I learned that you have a history, and this is something you've done before. So before we get into the call, just read a little more of Michael's bio so you all know who you're listening to, because coronavirus and pandemic news abounds. So Michael is the principal at MJC Solutions, his veteran-owned small business that provides professional consulting and advisory services to organizations serving the healthcare sector. He's held several leadership roles in emergency preparedness and pandemic response since 1997. That includes leading a health system pandemic response to the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, and most recently he served as the Senior Vice President for Clinical Integration at the Hospital and Health System Association for Pennsylvania, where he worked in the Hospital Preparedness Program. Dr. Consuelos's coordination of the health system response with local, state, and federal authorities was to help them all maintain healthcare business continuity and has since been used as a model by other hospital systems. So that theme of business continuity, we're going to pull that out today and translate it. How does it translate beyond Michael's work with the healthcare sector and into all of us who are facing so much uncertainty right now? Michael, as a long history of educating healthcare professionals and has been invited to speak to national audiences on healthcare response capabilities during nuclear incidents and, again, maintaining business continuity during a pandemic. So, Michael, did I miss anything? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jenny. That sounds great. Yeah. So uh, There's even more. Like, I didn't even cover everything in your extensive background. Yeah. And in my day job. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, let me go back a little bit. So, I was, as you mentioned, I'm a veteran-owned business, but I was a physician in the United States Army. And that's really where this all started. And and obviously, with mass casualty uh, care and then in the early 2000s, we were dealing with cambio threats uh, even before 9/11. So it's been it's been sort of a passion of mine to really help 
fellow physicians, healthcare workers to uh, really feel safe because really, you know, we take an oath uh, to take care of people. And uh, in these disasters or in these environments like a pandemic, uh, we put ourselves in danger. Uh, and it's important for us to uh, mitigate that danger as much as possible. And it's important, as we mentioned, uh, business continuity, it's really important for in healthcare for us to maintain our business continuity. Uh, so, you know, if the pizza shop down the street closes for a few days, yeah, that's an inconvenience. But if your hospital closed down for a couple of days, that is a huge problem from the community, uh, especially for those who are uh, suffering from chronic illnesses or, uh, let's say, uh, pregnant women who want to deliver a baby, all right, uh, that's a tough time to try to figure out where to get your care if that does not happen. So, yeah, so for me, business continuity, especially in this current environment, is really important for folks to take a step, if they already haven't done that within their own company, to think about business continuity. How long did you serve in the Army? Yeah, so I was in the Army for six years, and uh, actually I left right in 2001. It was kind of a strange timing right after 9-11. But, and since then, I've been in the, in the sort of civilian world in, in healthcare. And again, that's where I got more experience in the H1N1 pandemic, and then more recently with the hospital preparedness program, uh, which basically helps with federal funding prepare the hospitals and the regions and EMS to respond to all, all sorts of hazards. So it's an all-hazard uh, response because... It may be hurricane one year, it could be a fire like in California or in, in the current environment, a pandemic. Now, we're going to keep today's conversation pretty broad, but just to state for the purposes of the recording, because things are changing so quickly, Michael and I are recording this on Tuesday, March 10th. And again, we're going to try to keep our focus as broad as we can. At the same time, things may unfold. They're changing day by day. So, Michael, I think when we hear the word pandemic, of course, that alone can inspire pan panic. The movie yeah. Contagion is racing up the charts that it's almost number one on Amazon and iTunes. And, you know, I've heard of a range of responses. Some are batting down the hatches, like they're totally uh, stocking up on bulk supplies for the apocalypse. And then I have others who say, this fear is so overrated. The media is blowing it up. It's all sensationalism. This is no big deal. Where do you fall on that spectrum? I try to fall with the experts. So I try to get my information from folks at the CDC, uh, from the World Health Organization. Uh, there's a couple of great other resources. Johns Hopkins has put up a dashboard that tracks really minute by minute, hour by hour, the different cases and deaths across the uh, uh, not just the United States, but across the world. And, and you, know, you mentioned movies. Uh, we've seen this movie before, but it's just different, been different. Uh, I mean, this is more of a series, I guess, the different episodes. Yeah. So, you, you know, I think the reason folks on the medical side and the public health side and the emergency preparedness side are concerned is because this is acting differently than previous pandemics over the past past couple of decades. So just for a couple of minutes, we want to look back to 2003 when we had SARS, and that stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And that was another coronavirus. So coronavirus is, let me just take a step back. Coronavirus is basically the common cold. It's just, it just describes what kind of virus it is. And so it was a so-called SARS uh, coronavirus that started in Asia back in 2003. And uh, it had a pretty 
a good outbreak within a couple dozen countries, uh, North America, South America, Europe, but it really got contained pretty quickly with quarantining, tracking of travelers, and it seemed like it didn't spread as quickly as what we're experiencing today. And so the other thing that I think people are concerned about is the death rates that we've heard. And I had to get kind of grim right away, but SARS was just under like 10%, but 9.5% was uh, the fatality rate. So it's important to understand that if if a virus attacks uh, a host and that host dies pretty quickly or becomes very ill very quickly, then they're compromised and can't spread that virus to other people. Okay, and that became even more important a few years a few years later in Saudi Arabia when we saw MERS, and that's the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus, uh, back in 2012. And that fatality rate was about almost 30, 35%. And so those folks got severe respiratory illness uh, and pretty much a lot of them, one out of three died. And again, very sick, easily to identify, easily to quarantine, a very specific geographic region. And the virus didn't really spread that much. So what we're seeing today is a, a different animal. And because uh, at least as, as uh, we have recent data, 80, 85% of people have a mild cold and are, are could potentially be asymptomatic or meaning not having symptoms like fever and cough, uh, and they can spread it, right? It, so it spreads much more quickly. And so that is one of the concerns. And that's why we see countries quarantining large populations, because right now, unlike the other thing that we've been talking a lot about is the, uh, the, the flu, uh, the flu, we have uh, vaccines for. We have uh, antivirals, meaning medic- like an antibiotic, but if it's for a virus, uh, that can help shorten the course. And we have pretty good testing to track patients who have uh, influenza. We are just now getting the tests out for uh, the current uh, uh, coronavirus infection that we're calling COVID-19, but we don't have vaccines and we don't have an antiviral. and especially older people, as we've seen in countries like Italy, uh, that is really the high-risk group. It seems to be uh, older uh, citizens and also with chronic, serious chronic conditions. I know there's a lot of stuff there, but I kind of wanted to let people know why it's um, different in the past and different than the flu. And I think that's what the, the drums being beat is people thinking, well, this is just like the flu. Well, uh, it's not. That's really, really helpful. And yes, I've also heard that some have compared it to the Spanish flu, which ended up infecting 27% of the world's population. And so the numbers could get big. I think part of it too is, you know, first and foremost, anything we discuss in this conversation is Michael and I both want to say, we hope you and your loved ones and, and all people around the world. It's, you know, loving kindness. It's not even limited to just our friend, our family and the people we know and care about. But of course, to just have so much compassion for the people who have already passed from coronavirus, the ones Absolutely. who have it, the stress. And there may be some people who think, oh, well, I'm not the vulnerable population. And yet all of our daily lives are being significantly impacted at this point. So that does seem to be another indicator that this isn't going to be just another flu because yeah. we're seeing... Effects, you know, just the other day, my next two speaking engagements were canceled. A big event, I was going to attend TED 2020, was postponed. Who knows if that will stick? I have organizations where 
we are now having to develop contingency plans that they might want to book me for, let's say, later in the year. And we're going to have to come up with a three-pronged proposal. The event happens as planned. The event's all virtual. The event is canceled altogether. So even those who aren't in the direct line of fire today, which we all know you could be, so some may have a lot of fear and uncertainty around their health or their family's health. And then there's this other global economic impact and freeze that's happening and unfolding at a very rapid pace for people to adjust to. And it kind of removes even the ability to plan for the future right now, unless you're one of those that's like, oh, I love Black Swan events. I've been waiting for this for 15 (laughs) years, you know, can't wait to dive into my investing strategy. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. Right. And so you're right. And in the healthcare world, this is having also an impact. So we have um, a large health information uh, conference called HIMSS that was canceled. Uh, our societies and our associations are canceling their annual meetings, which usually happen in the spring or early summer. Those are going to become canceled. So yeah, so people, and then on a, on a perspective of uh, people like me now, a solopreneur, entrepreneur, uh, these conferences are the way we do our business. Jenny, and you know that. Absolutely. I mean, it's not just it's not just speaking engagements. It's it's. I have a couple of meetings coming up, and they're you know, discussing potentially canceling them. And I'm trying to. Uh, I work with several tech companies, uh, health information um, and health uh, digital health companies, and trying to to get their products and services out there. And it's it's handcuffing us, and so we have to think. Really, I mean, what I'd like to talk about with you because. You, you've got a great experience in in the entrepreneur world and and helping us sort of pivot, right? Uh, how can we do things a little differently, at least during the short to midterm period, so that we maintain our business continuity as an entrepreneur, as a business, as a large business, a, uh, a multinational global business? We need to maintain business continuity because I believe that part of and one of the things I want to talk about is really moving away from being a victim of the current circumstance to becoming a participant in the solution and mm-hmm. finding new ways. And for every disaster we've, we've had uh, over the past decade, in 2017, we had horrible hurricanes. We had the Harvey floods in, in Houston. We had mass shootings in Las Vegas. Each of those was a lesson for us to do a better job to protect ourselves and take care of people afterwards, right? And so there's an opportunity. I mean, let's pivot and make this, first of all, a opportunity for us to look at our business continuity practices, think differently about how we run our business and interact with people. And so we're prepared because this may not be the last one. Right. I remember when I was working on Pivot, I had just read Nassim Taleb's books. I had just finished Anti-Fragile, which is gaining from disorder. And of course, he wrote Black Swan that's now probably climbing its way back up the charts as everybody looks to that. And by the way, a Black Swan event, I should have pulled the exact definition by all riff from my memory, is one you can't plan for or predict. And there's no logic to it necessarily. There's no, uh, by definition, a Black Swan event is one you just can't see coming. It's not in the history books. Right. What makes this pandemic a black swan is that our our economy is so global now and organizations are so global. And in a way, you mentioned opportunity. We're also more tech equipped than ever before. We have the internet. We have tools like Zoom where you and I are recording this right now. And so in a way, that, and, and even 
it's so interesting to look at large, I work with very large organizations who are, by the way, some of those are putting a pause on even travel within their employees or in-person gatherings within their companies. So it's yeah. not just affecting cross-organizational events and meetings and, and conferences like South by Southwest getting canceled. It's, it's actually affecting how people do business within large organizations, definitely. And then you look at entrepreneurs and people like us that are we joke constantly in momentum about what sweats are you wearing today? You know, <laughs> like working from home, working remotely, yeah. adapting. So functionally speaking, entrepreneurs are quite well set up for doing business in this way. Many entrepreneurs, certainly it's very tough for those that have uh, businesses related to travel events, restaurants, sports, schools, theater, anything that has large gatherings. On the other hand, you mentioned speaking. I have some colleagues who speaking is their primary source of income, if not only source of income. And not only are the events all getting canceled like dominoes right now, but I can guarantee almost no one's going to plan a large gathering yeah. right now. Yeah. So typically fall is a busy season for me and many people I know. Well, nobody right now is going to spend more money and more cost and more planning on something they might just have to cancel. Yeah. So there's yeah, a very are, real income impact that is already occurring. Yeah, those are perish what, what what in economics we call perishable goods and services, right? So I mean, everybody thinks about apples uh, in their grocery store. That after a while they go bad, no one buys and get thrown out. But it, in our line of work, there's actually perishable events, right? So maybe you can push them back, but it's possible that some of these events are not going to occur, and they'll just rehash them next year or do something different, right? So that opportunity is gone. And uh, airline industry, restaurants, every time a table doesn't get filled or a seat doesn't get filled on, on an airplane, that's a perishable service or good that you'll never see that income again, right? It just, that, that flight will never, never be filled again. So I think, so you mentioned big organizations and, and I'm familiar with several and they are doing some interesting things. One of the things I want to share is uh, one of the large investment banking firms uh, in New York is splitting up their uh, their workforce, right? They're taking about half their workforce and they're moving them to another building um, in another borough. And uh, and then they're taking another percentage of the, of the folks and they're asking them to work from home. So they're basically taking their workforce, splitting it into not quite thirds, but so, you know, home office, uh, satellite office and home office. And what is genius and important about that, and people should look at that model, is if there is an event, if there is an event that requires quarantine for a large population of their workforce, if it happens in their home office, the other half or two thirds of the organization is still able to work and even possibly meet in small team meetings if they had to. Otherwise, if you had your whole organization in one building, there's a mass event where uh, people, multiple people get infected, that creates serious business continuity issues. So again, this is, uh, I don't know if that was part of their plan or they're working through that, but those are the kind of ideas that business leaders should start sharing. If they aren't already sharing with each other, even in a competitive environment, like you mentioned, we're all human beings. We all want to take care of each other. Uh, you know, lessening the number of people on the on the subways and, and buses and in transit, that is really helping decrease the chance of spread of the coronavirus, which is important for not just the company, but for the community. And that goes to diversification. And that's an investing strategy, as I know it's an investment bank, so it makes sense that they're thinking that way. 
even diversifying ones, I call it your pivot portfolio. So yeah. what are the business activities that you do, even if you're employed full time at an organization? The reality of our economy today is you could be reorged or let go at any moment in time. And what would you do? And when, you know, the interesting thing is pivot came out of a time where my business almost collapsed. So in a way at that moment, I was really thinking a lot about this. Like, what do I do if I'm in this position again and all hell breaks loose? And I kind of wrote pivot with that in mind, knowing that, well, that's what we need to be agile the most and, and have these backup plans. And in, in the book, I talk about redundancy. So maybe yeah. you do have a day job or a main source of income if you're self-employed, but what's something running in parallel. So for me, speaking is in person. Thank goodness I've been doubling down on licensing programs for the last five years. So not only does that preserve my business, but companies that don't want to organize people in rooms together are equipped to facilitate. So I'd love to talk and actually return to this idea about perishable services. There are some businesses with such slim margins as is, like, yeah. like restaurants and airlines. Yeah. And then, and then you have, let's say, entertainment goods, sports and theater. And I'm going to include a lot of links in the show notes for this episode. You can find them at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. Even articles in the New York Times talking about the theater, Broadway, Broadway yeah. shows being affected. Now, I know these are all first world problems of the highest order. So there's going to be a lot of people that don't have the privilege to work from home some workers in the gig economy, some who have jobs that, that it's not even possible. You can't, you can't work at McDonald's from home. That's right. not a thing. Right. And some businesses may or may not be flexible with giving people time for self-quarantine. Or even if schools shut down, which some are starting to do, the parents that I talk to now have to figure out not only yeah. how they navigate their role at work, but taking care of their children in the face of schools shutting down or, or self-quarantine even. So I know I'm jumbling a lot no, together. I, th those are all really important. So I, I want to take the last piece also. So there is a, there was a study uh, back in 2005, actually in, in the New York metro area where about 6,500 healthcare workers were interviewed and surveyed. And I want to bring this up because they brought together different types of emergencies, bioterrorism, chemical warfare, mass casualty. And they asked them, are you able to work? And then are you willing to work? And you're, some of the things you're talking about is whether or not they can actually work, you know, able to work in case there's something like that happening. And then there's the fear and the concern for someone's own health or the child care or elder care issues. And what they found was during what they actually used the, the SARS event that I spoke about a little bit earlier as an untreatable infectious disease outbreak. And about two thirds of folks said, yeah, I'll, I'm able to work, but less than half, I'm sorry, able to work out, but less than half were willing. And that meant that hospitals would be saying to themselves, how do I get those folks in the door? And you're absolutely correct. It's, it's if, as, as the, the, and the, and the reason is because as society starts to slow down, mass transit, daycare, schools, it draws the family unit back to the home right? And uh, they're not able to do their work or, or their work is not able to, to be done hourly. I just, uh, I just had a dental appointment a couple of weeks ago. So yes, twice a year, I get my teeth uh, cleaned. And the dental hygienist said, you know, what's happening? Because I get paid hourly and I have, I'm just trying, I'm scraping by, I'm trying to have two mortgage payments in the bank. 
Because if I don't work for two weeks or four weeks, I can't make mortgage payments. That's real life stuff. Absolutely. And what's so challenging is that even the business owners don't know and can't promise how long this is all going to last. So even if this person has saved two mortgage payments in the bank, there could come a situation. What you said about able to work and willing to work is so interesting because I'll give you an example. Even I was requested um, or invited to speak right as the domino started to fall. So it wasn't quite clear yet that every single thing was going to be canceled. Right. And it's cross country. And I was asking myself, it was this weird question where, and I, I spoke on my podcast with Grant Baldwin on building a sp- successful speaking career. He talks about uh, it's not just the value he brings to the organization. It's how much is it going to cost for him to leave his family? Yeah, I, I, and, and that was a great point. By the way, I did hear that podcast. Great podcast. Yeah. Plug well, for thank that. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and I think you're absolutely correct. I think correct. it's 155. But I was just going to say, I, I had to make is that calculation. It? Is it worth me not? Not worrying about the final yeah. destination. Is it worth me being in the airport and on the plane? Right. What's the price on that? And right. what's the what's the effect if I and how am I going to be the one lone wolf that says, Oh, it's no big deal? And then meanwhile, all the smartest, you know, organizations yeah. are like shutting things down. And then worrying not just not wanting to get sick, but how could the self-quarantine impact my business? And I'm always trying to build redundancy with my team where it all doesn't rest on my shoulders and I'm not the bottleneck. But these are very real questions now where money is at stake. And yet, how do you put a price on your health or being away from your family or exposing your family to yeah. a potential virus? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. That is a calculus that I think many, many people are, are uh, you know, not just, you know, so work, uh, attending events, uh, are they going to visit their family? Uh, my parents are in their 80s and they live in North Carolina. I live in Pennsylvania and I'm trying to figure out like, you know, I want to see them soon. Uh, I might just get in my car and just drive and not talk to anybody, I go through drive through and not, you know, basically, so I don't bring uh, the virus potentially to them and they have uh, some illnesses. So, you know, I think, I, I think that risk is real. People are making individual uh, calculations and, and I think we need to respect that. I think we need to respect where people are in their lives, their professional needs, and give people some space. And I, I think we need to kind of kind of come together and support people in those individual decisions because we don't know really the whole story behind the person. And I hope that businesses and conferences and and you know the people who make these larger decisions also uh, are doing the right things for the people. And it does seem that the people are doing that, you know, one of the, you mentioned the opportunity that comes during times like these, I'm finding there's a lot of flexibility, creativity, and collaboration that's happening, even in a business sense, because I just came from a call where we we kind of joked about pivot and how do you pivot when change is happening so quickly? And, and we have to scope out some future work together. And we're both saying to each other, well, we can't make any promises. Like we're almost laughing. In a way, it's yeah. not to make light of the situation, but we're like, let's try to have this planning call. And yet we have no clues. So I mentioned earlier, developing a three-part proposal of it's, it's in person, it's virtual, it doesn't happen. And what are the, and, and these are not bad things to have on hand anyway. By the way, absolutely. No, <laughs> you know, you're absolutely correct because it could be it could be other reasons, right? That this could happen. Uh, and, and, you know, so one of the things I want to I, I want to riff on that a little bit is, 
something I mentioned earlier, which is moving from a stance of being a victim of the situation to an active participant. And I like to say you actually become a hero. And, and that example that you're giving right now is you could say, well, I don't know enough information. I don't want to waste time doing this. I'll just wait. Right. And then you wait on the next thing. And then people who depend on you to do that work are also waiting. And I think it's important to go ahead and do that work up to the point where you have to pull the trigger for the trip, but moving from a victim to a participant and actually doing the work is beneficial to you, but also it's beneficial to people who work for you. And I think that that's people, folks, if they get anything out of this is to move from that stance of victim to, to try to maintain their business. Uh, there's a, there's a story that I give when I give talks to large audiences, there's, uh, uh, a person who worked for me, his name is Tom Grace. He was helping out in Florida during one of the hurricanes, I believe back in 2017. And this hospital, a small hospital, community hospital was being inundated, not just with, by water, but by community members. Folks were, it was the, the shelter was, was too full or they couldn't get to the shelter. So now the hospital was the safest, highest ground in the community. Right. And, and he was talking to their leadership. He was not on site. He was coordinating care across, uh, preparing us across the state. And he started asking some questions. And he started asking, well, you know, are those some people, are they, do you think they're willing to do some work, some manual labor? And they're like, yeah, probably. Um, do you have people who are in daycare or in the school systems? Do you think they would be able to work? Yeah. So instead of being victims of their situation, he had the leadership of the hospital. If people could physically do it, they were filling sandbags and shifts around the clock for 24, 48 hours. If they're daycare workers or teachers, they took the kids who come there as, uh, you know, as the high ground as they were trying to find shelter and because they already have the proper security clearance and everything else like that, started doing things with the kids to keep them entertained. So he moved that, that unit of group of people from being victims and waiting for the walls to come crashing down to actually taking care of themselves and each other. And it gave them purpose. And I think that, you know, thinking about next few minutes, maybe like, you know, what do we do? What do we, what do we do with ourselves and our, our, our um, partners in our work to move away from just waiting for something else to happen and reading the news 24 seven to, okay, what can I get done uh, over the next couple of weeks or months? That question alone is so important in a situation like this. And you're right that it'd be easy to be consumed by the news and, very quickly tip into fear and anxiety. You know, we have terms like FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or VUCA, which I know originated with the U.S. Army, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And we're certainly in those times. So I love your question of, and we could ask that of ourselves every day as the environment around us changes. How do I move from victim to hero? And I'll just say, uh, uh, and and I've had, it's been really interesting reading, uh, mostly I'll link to these from the New York Times about even schools and theater companies, how they're piloting global streaming. So there's an opera in Italy and Italy is on countrywide lockdown, quarantine. So they streamed their performance showing the yeah. show must go on, the show will go on. And we, we can do this now. Schools that, uh, you know, a lot of universities were already experimenting with um, sort of massive online courses and online streaming. Well, now they're getting a chance to pilot a lot of this technology and almost like leap ahead. Even the corporate organizations I work with are running through scenarios. What if we had to transition all of our training online? What would that look like? Which courses could have that happen the quickest? So I think on this victim to hero shift, 
One, it's asking the question. And I, I also think it's realizing when you're sucked into the media cycle versus kind of getting a little daily dose of like reality, what's happening or as close as possible. When are you sucked into it? Even for me, it is, I will say it is, it is nerve wracking as a, an entrepreneur and a breadwinner and saying, I am exactly one of those types of businesses that all work could dry up if the economy slows down, you know, and I've known that yeah. for a long time yeah. and it's, um, it would be easy to tip into total anxiety about that. And so I would love to, for us to talk about when you find yourself, even in those moments, even you, Michael, I wonder if you get anxiety or you're just kind of used to this by now, you've been through it before, but how, how you shift it. So, yeah. um, yeah, the, the models I talk to folks about, um, there, I think there's, there's what I call quiet work or quiet, um, actions that are more internally facing. And then there are the active or external facing, uh, business continuity or business, uh, changes you can make. So, I, you know, just, just thinking about as I, as you're talking about that, I think about, well, you know, we're in, in, um, March, it's tax season. Um, you know, Hey guys, did all of you get your taxes done yet? Uh, you know, right. It's got to get done. Um, it seems, sounds kind of weird to talk about that, but how about you get that finished while, you know, we can't, uh, we all have proposals. We've all had our sort of boilerplate proposals. That's kind of a quiet activity. It never seems to have enough time. Um, we, was the last time we refreshed, I don't know, customer contacts, um, fine tuned our keynote, right? I mean, you talked about the, you know, Jenny, you talked about the couple of keynotes that you've given and I'm sure you give great keynotes, but you know, is there, this is an opportunity for folks who do that work to say, huh, how can I change my keynote and pivot to this current situation? What, what can I, what can I, how can I fine tune it to be more in tune with the current uh, worries and concerns of leaders. Um, so I don't know. This is like, you know, I could probably come up with 10 other things, but that's, you know, those are internal things. What do you think about that? What do you think about just like alone time uh, to work through, work through stuff that sometimes you don't get that space? You don't get that. Well, I, one thing I read was saying, of course, this is, again, I, oh, it's just the, the privilege and then the sort of like, loved one's health caveats just have to go above everything I'm saying. But this one article was that this is giving everybody the break they need, that actually our world yeah. is so fast paced and there's so much work and so many meetings and so much travel. For me, this will be the least I've traveled in 10, if not 20 years, because I traveled a lot, even wow. when I worked at Google, the most I've been sort of like grounded. And there is a little bit of relief. Like there is there is a little bit of a feeling of everyone I think gets to hunker down a little bit, you know, and I listened to the other pivot podcast with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. And they were saying, who's doing better right now than the president of Purell or, yeah. or the head of Netflix? Because so the quiet, I think is also acknowledging so for me, the quiet mode, I love this, this distinction between quiet things we can do internal versus active and external. For me, quiet is this, the self-compassion one, like this is a stressful time. So, so sometimes just saying that to myself, um, yes, you are in a business that is vulnerable to complete economic slowdown. We all are. Imagine not just what it's like for me, imagine what it's like for others. Uh, be grateful for 
what I do have, I do know how to work from home. I do have a lot that I already do virtually by nature of working with global companies. Um, Quiet, the internal is about not just self-compassion, but really looking at when am I in fear? When am I ruminating? So some fear is healthy because it, it says, you know, even, oh, it's, it's, it's time to refinance. It's a good time to have extra cash on hand. Mortgage rates are at a record low. Okay. Like revisiting certain decisions like that and, and reflecting and when am I ruminating? And so if I'm ruminating and I'm thinking fear-based thoughts, everything could collapse. All my income could stop. If, if other companies stop doing business, then they certainly are going to be hiring external consultants. Well, I could also counter that with a thought that's just as true. So, because I don't know. So if I'm going to think the fear-based thought, I might as well add a thought that says, well, companies are going to need external and remote and scalable programs, certainly around navigating change now more than ever. So I also try to have that discipline of fear-based thoughts are okay. They're, they're natural. It's understandable. And what's the other side of that, that, that is about gratitude for myself, my family's health, you know, everyone I know, and also, and also asking that question of, well, what is the opportunity here? What is the, there's the fear-based thought and certainly things could go the way of the worst case scenario. Why don't I, I might as well ask what's the best case scenario or how am I well positioned, not just focusing on the fear of being an entrepreneur in times like these or small business, but saying, well, what's good about that? Maybe I'm more agile than a lot of bigger organizations, you know, just finding the good. Yeah. I, so I have to say, Jenny, I, I don't know what other folks are getting out of this, but I'm getting something out of it. Right. So, cause I think that we'll your right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, I mean, I think, you know, as I, as I thought about our conversation, I, you know, maybe just my personality, a lot of it was, um, you know, checking the boxes on things that, you know, I thought could, could get done in this quiet time, but you, you've helped me reframe it in a way to, um, really be mindful um, and notice the fear and, and and be okay with it and say, yeah, that's there. Um, okay. Now what are we going to do kind of thing? Um, it, you know, I think everyone is concerned, I, you know, even, you know, if there's folks who aren't concerned, uh, I worry about them the most actually. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's yeah. even, there's concern about business and the economy. And as you said, there's concern about the people we love parents, my dad, my dad and I were set to have a visit in Seattle coming up. And that just doesn't seem like a good idea for either of us to be on public transportation in and out of where we know that there's more activity around COVID-19 than in other parts. So um, of course, people could also ruminate. I mean, I've talked in previous podcasts, like the one with Casey Carter about how I think about my death or my family's like quite often. I'm always yeah, I, like, I, what I, if this I, is the I, last time we talk? <laughs> well, you know, the one that bothers me sometimes you talk about, I'm sorry, just yeah, everybody, everybody, okay. everybody not listen to this is when you talk about when you were publishing your book, that if you died before your book was published, I mean, I, I, it, it, that hit me and thought mm-hmm. the work that I'm doing, what if I don't get to see it to the end? All right. I know. I mean, I know we're getting really, but the, really but down here. You know that it's important. Like to yeah. me, death doesn't, I, when I go through these thought exercises, memento mori, it's not 
it's not in a morbid and I'm not even depressed about it. Like I actually think I scare people around me because I'm like, okay, just so you know, here's the file. So if when I die, here's where to find everything. And I'll just talk about it like the weather. And um, that can be really concerning for people. And so, yeah, it's, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say like, no, no, no. It I'm, really I'm, is an yeah. indicator that you care. Yeah. No, you're absolutely correct. And how to make the most, like we, because COVID-19, something like this makes it so immediate in our face. We or the people we love could get sick. And yet that is a reality every day. Like the people who are not alarmist about this and don't seem that worried. They're like, look how many people die in car crashes every day. You know, they are comparing it to sort of broader things that could happen in any given day. I don't think that helps people much. I think the anxiety about your family staying safe and healthy is still going to be there, but it's not that productive ultimately, unless there is, maybe this takes us into the active piece, but it's almost like what's happening in the stock market. What you don't want is everybody panicking and taking their money out at the worst possible time when the market is at an all time low or relatively so. And the same thing could happen with moving people around. Like it's actually not probably the time unless they're in a nursing home that's been affected, which has happened of course. Yeah, uh, you're, you know, it reminds us of our impermanence in our current state, right? So, <laughs> meaning we're on this big blue marble together uh, for a period of time. It, you know, we're not going to talk about what happens before or afterwards, but you, you know, it reminds us that that life is fragile, that our work is important, and that uh, you, know, you know, again, the reason I'm passionate about this is because it. To me, I think it matters for people to maintain some sense of purpose and to continue about their daily lives. And you mentioned the opera and the, and the theater. I mean, I think there's the economic impact, but we derive great joy from those events, from the sporting events, that sense of community to cheer for our team and you know say bad things about the other team. That's a human experience that is going away for a period of time. Uh, sorry, we're getting kind of dark here a little bit, but, but, but then by facing and say, okay, but the fact that it exists is precious and valuable for us to do the things we need to do to bring it back. That's, I, I just love that piece of the reminder around impermanence and, and recognizing all those things that, that do bring us joy as, as, as a culture and a society and, and how much value there is. You know, it's, it's a time for us to, to, to rethink not just our own business, but our, maybe our relationships, to reach out to people. If we can't be with them on phone, um, it's likely that they're potentially stressed and suffering. Um, you know, again, this is now we're moving to a more of an active state, but, uh, you know, to reach out to the loved ones and uh, make new friends also, right? So, you know, maybe we could talk a bit more about the active stuff because I think there's also this pent up need for people to do something and put them put their hands to work, their minds to work. You know, what a great opportunity to think about. Boy, how do I leverage uh, technology? How do I? You know, what have I not tried before that now I have to try? I don't know. I mean, um, yeah, I would love to. I would love to talk about active response, both in terms of health more broadly and the world more broadly and business because they're two different things so there's active in terms of i think by all by now we all know wash your hands 20 seconds yes Yes. sing that song but yeah and right wash them wash them longer than you possibly think you should wash your hands 
The crazy thing though, is someone said like stock up on all these things and hand sanitizer. Cause I'm really not a germaphobe by nature. And I was thinking, yeah. oh, my friends that are obsessive about germs, they're most, now's their time to shine. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, yeah. I'm already in the habit of doing all these things. Like I never used to wipe down every corner of an airline seat before. I know I probably should. And I have friends that do, but now that's the advice is take a wet wipe or sanitizing wipe and it, it, wherever, if it's a plane or not. But I will say, I went onto Amazon. I was trying to be responsible. So I thought, okay, I better stock up on a few things. Boom. Hand sanitizer is out, sold out. Yeah. All the stores near us, it's sold out. The shelves are clear. So in terms of active response, first, again, we'll cover the, just the health aspect and the general response. And then I'd love to dive into the business and career side with you. But in terms of active, what do you even do if that stuff's cleared off the shelves? Like we can't even get a lot of these materials. Right. So right. I, th I want everybody, now you're a few years younger than I am, uh, but I remember when I was growing up, there was this thing that my parents put next to the sink um, and made bubbles um, and I washed my hands with it. So soap actually works pretty well. So I mean, I understand the convenience of, of hand gels and these, you know, if you're on the move and you're out in public, I, that, that's hard to replace. But everybody should have plain old soap at home and just just make it a habit every time you come in from the outside world to to wash your hands if you're in a public place uh, use the facilities to wash your hands. you know everybody should be doing it but it's surprising to see how many people don't actually do that there you know it's hard to replace the the the, the portable gels and i and i hope that people stop hoarding because so if you have all the hand gel in town, that means everybody else is going to get sick. And at some point you're going to get sick, right? So there has to be some responsibility there. Uh, it, the, the wiping down of things, you know, basically alcohol, isopropyl alcohol, if, if you can find it in, in the, in the pharmacies or, or in grocery stores, uh, unlike some things you've seen, I think people are using, you know, vodka, that's, that's 40% alcohol. That's not going to work. It needs to be at least 70 per, 65 to 70% alcohol to really dry. The, what it does, it basically desiccates. It dries the virus and it can't live. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, that you can start basically, and I hate to say this, but a little rubbing alcohol to, to put on your hands. And, you know, if you, if you saw the old movies, I think in MASH, I remember, you know, they would used to be like jokingly would take the alcohol that they made and rub their hands. But, you know, I think just plain old alcohol would work. So, I mean, I think there's, there's lots of home remedies, but I think just washing your hands, that act of washing hands and social distancing. And, and especially for, for folks who may be listening to this, who are over the age of 60, 65, or have chronic illnesses, really think twice about being in large crowds and, and try to keep enough distance away from themselves and people who may be sick. I do find it's a little confusing because some of the media it says, just go about your daily lives. Everybody stay calm. Here's how to stay calm. Yeah. And then, but it kind of feels like some of the fear and anxiety people are experiencing is warranted. And even the social distancing, I was just thinking about just yesterday, we meet a lot of people walking the dog now. <laughs> I live in New York City. Sure. He's so cute. He's just now five months old. You've seen him. We zoomed. Yeah. With our yes, two right. dogs. Go right up. And uh, sometimes people, once we're, talking about the dogs and we're done, they like go to shake my hand. It is an awkward moment. And so now yeah. part of that social distancing is like offering the elbow bump, you know, right, right. but it is an awkward moment where you got to be like, Oh, coronavirus. Not everyone's obsessively reading about it 24 seven and knows 
protocol yet. So that's what's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and different communities, as time goes, different communities have different levels of risk. And so depending on when you hear this podcast, your community could not have anybody in in the vicinity who is positive for COVID-19 or there could be a uh, you know, significant number of folks. So every, so it's hard to generalize, right? I guess I'm saying, and I think that it's, I, I think it's, 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 it's important to know your own risk and risk tolerance and, and trying to limit your risk, but absolutely trying to keep society going and keeping a, some sense of normalcy is also important. Moving on to the business side. Yes. So I'll offer a few things. Definitely want to hear what your what's on your mind. I mentioned contingency plans. Another thing that I think is very interesting about navigating work in an emergency like this one in a global pandemic is that what it's doing, at least from my rookie perspective, like I'm not you, I'm not an expert, um, but I do have a sort of an interesting seat, I guess, in that I've been studying change. But what I'm seeing is that it's really accelerating a lot of global trends in the workforce that were already happening. So remote work was already happening. I've talked about Basecamp, a recent podcast I did on the book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Remote work is a thing. And a lot of companies were more, some were more or less open to it. Days of working from home, um, again, figuring out how to facilitate large gatherings virtually, things like massive online education, MOOCs. So these are trends that this is where things were starting to go anyway. And one opportunity that I see here in terms of active and those who are both employees, executives, and entrepreneurs is to say, how does responding now to a pandemic and pivoting around a pandemic actually position us for where these trends and technology are taking us in the future anyway? So if your team doesn't know how to facilitate training over tools like Zoom or Google Hangouts, now's the time to learn. If you are an entrepreneur and you offer services that are in person, now's the time to adapt and say, how do I deliver and how do I shape programs in an environment of uncertainty? What would it look like to create contracts? And this goes for both sides of the equation or all sides. What would it look like to create contracts that actually have resiliency built into them? in terms of how the work is delivered such that companies do not want and cannot stop doing business simply because the pandemic is happening. In fact, for most people, the urge is going to be, how do we keep our business going? And for that reason, we all need to ask this question of how do we do our business in a way that is global, scalable, and virtual? And that's going to that's gonna last a long time, even when we opt for in-person, which now becomes the thing we're so grateful for. In a way, it's like what you said about sporting events and theater, that it shows how special it really is to be able to yeah. do our work in person. And yet now that's not going to be the only way things get done anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So when I speak to business audiences on this topic, I, I ask them about, you know, is it important to be the first to market with a new viable product? And like, Oh yeah, yeah. Is it, you know, is it important to have uh, an, you know, monopoly or oligopoly or, you know, you know, basically have a limited, a patent on a certain technology? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So why do you not think it's important that your business, which could be the only business in town, stay open, right? I mean, businesses work so hard to be first movers, to get their patent, all that, all that. And business continuity, the active things that you're describing, the businesses, 
this is my this is what I'm theorizing. The businesses who are doing the things you just described, Jenny, the quickest, the best, and most efficiently have an advantage in the market now and for the future. Right. And it occurs to me too, even for in so many individuals who don't currently work from home, but are increasingly might be asked to work from home. It's a skill. I mean, you and I, Michael, like people laughed at me because I have a free course called free up founder time. I'll put it in the show notes. Great and I course. did this bonus call. Somebody asked me, JB, how do you prevent interruptions when you have family around? Cause they just think because I'm home, I'm miss available all day long. And I actually bought this color-coded foam door hanger system from Amazon, like there's $6 for six colored foam door things. And I wrote little messages on each one, like recording a podcast that goes on the red foam door hanger, recording right. a podcast, do not right. enter. Right. And there's a yellow one. It's like working, feel free to knock or text, you know? So some of the hangers say text only, please. Purple is meditating or doing yoga, like text only. So for my husband and I, he laughs at me. Everybody laughs at me. That's fine. I'm okay with it. But there is actually an indicator on my door that says what the protocol is. Because again, just because I'm home doesn't mean that I'm available. And there are very small, simple things like that, that people who don't know how to work from home, it can be really anxiety producing because you have stress. Oh, if I hear the dog is barking or you have a child who needs you or you're hungry or you're bored and you go to the fridge or there goes the TV remote. It's so close. It's right there. It's not easy to work from home. It sounds like a luxury and in many ways it is, but there's a lot of challenges and just anxiety that comes with it, which yeah. by the way, just got me to remember what I wanted to talk to you about on the quiet. Okay. All right. Um, stress alone, right? Fear, worry, uncertainty, stress alone on that quiet side. Let's say that the, um, the downbeat part of the quiet internal that alone can create uh, a compromised immune system, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so let's talk about the importance oh, yeah. so, of that. Yeah. I just don't want to forget. And then we'll come no, back yeah. to the no, 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 no. I, in fact, you know what? I, I meant to bring this up and you know, I have a little outline to just, uh, you know, sort of self-disclosure. Uh, you know, I try to get organized <laughs> for these things. Of and course. I, and I, and I, as, as I was riding my bike, so I'm a big cyclist, as you know, I had this like, oh, there's this thing. And then it never ended up. That's the bad part. It's like, I, I can't remember to write all this stuff down. And the AARP, right, um, did a study, and I'm going to get the, probably the, do, the exact dollar amount wrong. It's about $134 increase in cost for elderly people who suffer from social isolation. So it costs the, the healthcare system an additional $134 a year if that elderly person is isolated. And basically what that means is that their other chronic illnesses don't do as well. They have anxiety, stress, or other behavioral health uh, issues that worsen. And so it's actually a real cost of the system, not just the, the personal suffering that you're describing, but it has a true economic impact. And you're absolutely correct. The isolation, we are, we are social beings, even... Um, you know, I'm an E, I'm an extrovert. So I, I get the energy from other people. Um, and there are, the, I heard, I heard a rumor there's eyes out there, uh, but uh, you, you know, it, see the eyes are going to thrive right now. I know exactly. Like, like we were going to be like, sweet. Yes. I don't have to go anywhere or see anyone. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, finally, that they would leave me alone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there are, there is, and I'm just, this is just the one thing I remember. There is data that shows that social isolation in human beings creates 
problems. It creates problems in their health and, and their productivity and other things. So, I mean, you know, let's not get totally grim, but there's a reason they put, you know, they put people into isolation as a, as a, as a punishment. Right. So um, anyway, so yeah, so I, I think that, 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 that piece is really important to remember. And maybe that can be part of the, we have, we have, I, I'm picturing this great diagram, Michael, of like quiet, active, uh, upbeat, downbeat, you know, those aren't even the right words up and down, but um, maybe when you find yourself in that quiet, stressful rumination, one reminder is that takes you into the active is actually, it's, it's important for my, my health and wellness, for my yeah. immune system to move out of that mode. So yeah. having compassion and recognizing it and, and talking to yourself as you would talk to a friend or a child, which is to say, don't beat yourself up. Like, oh, what the hell's wrong with you? Why are you just reading the news all day? No, that's not the narrative. It's just, hey, I know this is stressful. And actually the best thing I can do for my health is take my vitamins, rest, you know, have, have exercise, keep social distancing, and like go back to that active place actually for the betterment of your immune system because the placebo effect, like our minds are so powerful. And that alone is an important step to take, no matter how much kind of discomfort is like just, I think, important to try to avoid compounding the stress because then our immune system goes to fight the stress, not the long-term really vital health prevention. And we probably don't have our clearest minds also. Yes. Right. right. So, so it's hard to, I think, d- dive into our work if there's this constant noise uh, of worry in the background, right? So it's hard to get into, a, as you say, a flow state uh, if that's happening to you. Um, I, I want to just go back to just what you were saying about those door hangers, right? Those oh, are- Oh, yeah. Now we can bounce back. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, you know what good. I- Sorry. But, you know, I think those little tricks- and, and for people to share, I mean, I think that's a, that's an active thing that you can do within your own community or, or people who are now used to be in their own, in offices together, who are now in some sort of social isolation. Talk about things like that. It's like, Hey, you know, how are you handling this? What are you doing? Oh, you know, I heard a podcast, the great Jenny Blake talked about through these door hangers. I did that. It helped me out. Share that information with other people. I think that's also an active part to Again, it's a system, right? And, and people will start getting their own systems. But that could be, that's a piece of work to share within a, a business, a management group, just to check in. Say, just like people do the, the coffee counter or the water cool, whatever else, everybody's checking in how their weekends are. Let's not stop doing that just because we're working remotely. Right. right. Let's, let's, let's put that into our day somehow. Let's, it, it, you know, it's, it's hard to have a virtual, uh, water cooler or coffee uh, bar or whatever, but let's not forget that that serendipity of conversation to catch up with people and talk about how they're doing is an important piece that that companies and individuals need to find some sort of outlet um, that isn't completely tied to some sort of asynchronous communication. Right. So it's not just oh, I'm posting on Facebook or I'm posting on this or this. You know, let's we need that face-to-face time or that interaction uh, to, to feed off each other and to develop ideas, right? Um, which again is another active that, that's, that I'm concerned about is that when people go to conferences and you hear a speaker, there's some idea generation. There's actually a mental change that occurs and you see the world differently, 
or you're, you bump into somebody at a breakfast and they tell you what they do and you learn a little bit about what their company does, your world is better because you learn about another person, their role. It also be like, oh, I didn't realize that's what you guys did, whatever it is. That's going to be missing, right? And so, so how do we, and we may not be able to reel all that back in, but how do we allow those type of interactions to occur? Uh, and I think that you mentioned these long, these large online courses or large meetings. You know, there's people are probably be a lot smarter than I am to see could we set up something that happens more virtually and people do breakout sessions? You know, so if you have a conference now, as I mentioned, some of these conferences in healthcare, they're now being done virtually. Um, that serendipitous interaction and making the trading the the business card and making a connection is no longer going to be there. So, so, and I, you know, like zoom and other type of, of conference uh, platforms do allow for, for breakouts. Right. I love that feature of zoom. It's so good. You just used it recently. It was, and I was a big fan. Yeah. Everybody said more and more. We want more time breaking out with each other, you know, because that's Um, a natural, that's a natural human response. I think is, as you're sharing ideas and you're building off each other, like you and I are having this, you know, people are just sort of, you know, sort of eavesdropping here. You and I are having this idea generation that is really hard to have by passing emails back and forth or texts or whatever else. We need that space. We need that 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 little rope, that little connection between us mentally to feed each other. And then we're a better person, I think, because of it. There's, there's a lot we can also learn from each other. I think entrepreneurs are going to learn from organizations. How are organizations setting the tone and what policies are they putting in place? Because yeah. we don't have, I don't have some chief... HR officer who's telling me what to do. <laughs> so I might look at, well, what are the organizations out there doing? How are yeah. the, you know, if the, so part of the reason South by Southwest was canceled was that the big companies pulled yeah. out of it. Google, yeah. Twitter, Facebook, they said, we're not sending our employees. We can't be liable if anything happens. By the right. way, of course, the residents of Austin, Texas were saying, are you kidding me? Get this out of here. Like they signed a petition saying, don't bring us this risk. But so I think Entrepreneurs can learn from organizations and kind of track a little bit. Similarly, organizations yeah. have a lot to learn from entrepreneurs in that even my course, Free Up Founder Time, I created it for founders, solopreneurs. Yeah. And yet, as we were talking, I'm like, there's so much in there that would be relevant. So companies have to be willing to tap into all that exists in the entrepreneurial world around how do we work? How do we get things yeah. done? And, and companies always talk about, they want every employee to be the CEO of their career. They want employees right. to take, think like an owner. Yeah. Even the idea of virtual conferences, I stopped saying yes a long time ago to participate because I was just getting like five requests a week. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but I just made a blanket rule. I'm not going to participate. But look at all the people who I've done one. I organized one called Speak Like a Pro way back, maybe 2000. I don't even know what year, long time ago. But now the people who organize virtual online conferences, now you have things like what you were explaining in the health and healthcare industry that are going virtual. They have so much to learn about how people have already organized these events, even from a technical hosting standpoint, that I think is so there's going to be some very interesting cross-pollination and peeking over the fence at what the other group is doing and sure. what we can learn. So I, I want to I build on that. So here's an idea that somebody could do actively, right? So a lot of the folks who are entrepreneurs today, like myself, and I've done this, I've reached out to former employers and say, hey, do you, do you need some help? Like, you know, I'm pretty busy, but is there something I can help you with? And, and I'm thinking the 
folks who are doing the solopreneur entrepreneur journey right now, a lot of them had prior uh, employers and they're, like you're saying, they're skilled at some of the things we just described. You know, they could actively reach back into their network and say, look, I know how to run virtual meetings. I know how to do this. I know to do whatever the laundry list you just mentioned. Do you guys need help? Right? Which, by the way, is what so many of my coaching clients in the past have done successfully. Their first client is often the company that they're leaving, yeah. that they were working for full-time. And this can be beautiful ongoing relationships, One like what I have with Google, where I might have left full-time back in 2011, but we still work together to this day, happily so. I am so delighted when I get to go in and give a keynote to a group within the company and, and vice versa. They're just this happy to hear from a former Googler, they call them Zooglers, in the wild. Zoogler. What's it like? Yeah, with an X. Like, with like, an X. Is there, is there life after Google? Um, kind of like after, life after college, right? So right. Someone uh, yeah. did suggest <laughs> I write that book a long time ago, and then I think uh, somebody did. Who knows? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, the other thing I was thinking of was, uh, uh, like, I'm an executive coach, and I know you coach, and a lot of folks who are listening to this are probably coaching also have some sort of service, professional service around the coaching lines. And, and I've heard you speak, other people speak about on-demand services, right? And so how could you write a really quick agreement contract and throw it out there for people to, as they're stressed or they're having, they're having leadership issues with their groups, now they're all disjointed and doing whatever they're doing. That's an active thing, right? It's a, it's a new business line. It's, you don't have to go meet people. You're now getting your name out. And uh, it's try something new. And that's actually, it's on my little checkoff list for this week to say, okay, how would I do on-demand services specifically on this topic, emergency preparedness, but other things that I do for coaching and, and where I don't have to really garner a long-term relationship, but say, look, if you need help and you're just asking to spend time with somebody and bounce some ideas and get some on the spot, just in time, uh, just like the hand gel, you know, in the stores is just in time delivery. It's just in time coaching or just in time advisory work. Uh, you know, I don't know. What do you think about that? That also, I love it. And that also connects to the idea of piloting. None of us know or have the answers about what to do and what the future is going to hold. So we mentioned at the beginning, leading your company to pivot around a pandemic. So if you are a leader, you are a manager. Yeah. I'm not in these organizations. I have now been privy to the internal communications, but I can imagine that so much of the role of a leader right now is to say, I don't know. I don't have the answers. And this goes to change management to use industry speak, but to say, I don't know. And we're all in this together. We're going to figure it out. And if I were a leader, I would say, I'm going to ask for your help taking things day by day. And what's so funny is that as an entrepreneur, I tell that to my team already. I'm like, I might have moments where I'm like, listen, I don't know how I'm going to pay you next month. This is the reality. So if you could just be patient with me about this invoice, you know, I'm giving it a little more bluntly than I might. But uh, as an entrepreneur, we're already having setting that tone because we simply just do not know what the future holds at any given time. The other thing, so there's piloting, being willing to pilot different streams of income if you're an entrepreneur and pilot different forms of sort of contractor relationships, pulling in remote work, pop-up work, coaches, consultants as needed, of course. There's a certain level of responsiveness. So Michael, you did exactly that, actually. You've been a superstar momentum member. Like you've been, you've just added so much <laughs> since you joined. But thank you, Jenny. You you reached out to to us, to my team, and said, 
Hey, just want to make myself available. If you need anything at all for, for you, for momentum, just let me know. And that gave me an opportunity to respond and say, actually, yes, let's record a podcast. So that brings me to my third point. So we have piloting, responsiveness, and this goes to the quieter internal side of things, perfectionism. When you wrote that, I thought, this is important. We do need to talk about it. And I'm nervous. What the hell do I know about pivoting around a pandemic? And I can only speak from my seat, my position in the world and what I'm thinking about and going through and the the expertise I do have around change, navigating change. But I was nervous. However, if I let perfectionism get in the way, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I've talked about this before on the podcast. I'll throw it in the show notes. We have to be willing to move forward. In the book, I talk about Google's mantra, get be scrappy. We have to be willing to move forward in a very scrappy, imperfect way where that's also responsive and quick. So I mentioned earlier my, my friend who said, how do you deal with change when it's happening so quickly? So you and I, Michael, I did not wait for you to fit into the schedule. We're booked out till April. You know, at this point, we're booked six weeks out. I said, let's record as soon as possible. How about, you know, how about Tuesday? You said, yes, we're in the moment. We're building the kind of talking, you know, what do we want to cover in this call? We're doing it on the fly the first 15 minutes before we hit record. And then I'm going to push the schedule out. Like I'm actually going to squeeze this in on an off day of, of publishing. A podcast is a very tiny example, but to give a sense that that's how everything is going to be. It's going to be scrappy, responsive, in the moment, agile, imperfect. Things are going to be messy. A lot of things we said might become out of date or might've been said in a less delicate way than could have been said. And yet, as Petra said in her book, Perfection Detox, the world needs your imperfect voice, not your perfect silence. So I think we're all going to have to be willing to, to keep moving, knowing that it's imperfect and responsive and can change at any time. Yeah. So I want to follow up with that is that, uh, my email to you and to your listeners, I, you know, I have a passion about this. I, there's, there's, uh, I've been giving out free advice. Don't do, you know, probably to my own detriment the past couple of weeks, but, but basically because I care about people and I want to maintain relationship, professional relationships and friendships in this current environment. Because if I were to look at every single way I could have turned a dollar for my expertise on this, then what happens? Right. I, I'm not, I'm not being true to myself. And, you know, and we're and humans who are true to themselves, sometimes are kind of messy, sometimes imperfect. And I didn't know what was going to come out of my mouth half the time during our conversations, um, mainly because I'm an extrovert. So, but, you know, I, I like what you're saying. I like that, that, that there is, especially in this, it, on one side, there's the facts of the pandemic, or there is the trends, there's the science, there's the difficulty that each organization, each family, each individual is facing. And then on the flip side, again, it's let's stop from having all this stuff happen to you, which is factually happening, and move into a position where you're actively taking some control to move towards solutions. And they may or may not work, but if you're not doing anything now, you're not, nothing's getting done. Right. You know, it's sort of uh, if you don't explore that pilot and, and if you have fear of failure, you're, I'm sorry, but you're, you're still in the same place. That thing isn't getting done and you may learn something. You know, we in science learn just as much from our success as we do from our failures. 
And if we didn't have failures, um, you know, again, the, the sweet joy of success is not as sweet. Um, so, you know, I think that, that I think there's, there's, there's a lot of space for piloting, for trying things. I kind of want to move to, you know, the difficulty I'm having is how do large organizations maintain, uh, I don't want to say order, but a flow of information, a congruence to their mission and to what they're trying to accomplish when people have spent decades working from an office. So now, you know, so we're sort of the scrappy entrepreneurs, but there's a lot of folks out there who've been wearing the the suit, uh, the, you know, whatever it is to the office every day and now are then in this new environment. And I think I would posit that leaders need to be humble and realize that there's going to be some bumps in the road, that there are going to be individuals who are very uh, productive, efficient leaders or managers or workers in their organization who are going to struggle for a while in this potentially new um, electronic version or distance working environment. It's okay, but you don't want to shut them down. You want to say, okay, how do we learn from that? How do we help you? What are the systems and how do you make, how do you bring the familiar back into that environment? So, you know, one of the things that I think about is as you go to a meeting, one of the things I've been, I've been reading a a little bit about this is that you know, when you come to meetings, there's sort of a, a space that you get into to be active in the meeting. Everybody has their roles. And if you have a large organization, how do people assume those roles? How do they get, how do they change that, that pace of their work to get whatever they need to get done to that meeting? And I think it's organizations who are successful in managing those rocky waters and allowing the folks who may traditionally have not been connected that way have not been wired that way to do that work to help them along because you need to keep them in in the in the flow of the organization so you know how you open meetings how you allow uh the agenda to be shared how do you um how do you recognize people on the phone right if you're if you're in a meeting i think the simple fact that someone just starts talking you look over you know who's talking and you recognize you, all the history and everything else is in your mind and you're going with the meeting and but when you're in a remote uh, virtual meeting world, you know, it's important for people to do things like announce who they are or, you know, there's there certain things that you need to almost over communicate, I think. Uh, so. Yeah, there's my, so, there's so much in there. Sorry to go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, go ahead. There's so much in there and I just couldn't help but think while you were talking as well. I know you don't like it when I go to when I go to downbeat, but the fact is, again, regardless of the health spread, if people are if there's too much fear and uncertainty and markets stop and there was just a freeze placed on the market just the other day, um, this not to incite panic, but the very real facts are in previous slowdowns, certain industries absolutely took a hit that they didn't bounce back from. Yeah. Um, and not just not saying the industry would have that, but there may be companies that go out of business. Like it's crazy to say that. And I hope that's not the case for anybody listening or anywhere you work, but that could happen. I think part of that is like a splash of cold water in the face as well. Let's be real. It's, we don't know. And if things slow down so much to the point where you don't have that pivot runway, you don't have those reserves of cash, whether you're a billion dollar company or trying to make your mortgage payment, there will come a point where you, you need to know what your plan B is. 
as a person and as an employee. So those are two different things or as an entrepreneur. So we, it's not a bad idea to know what that is and um, to try to be creative. Like you said, not, not over monetizing a time like this, but also being creative about what is needed and sort of pivoting services or the way we do business. And then in terms of communication, I just wanted to build on what you said, things like Slack. So my team and I were all introverts, actually, we can't stand having Slack always on that would drive us nuts if we felt we were constantly getting pinged and things in our, in our virtual faces. But we use Slack, let's say we're launching momentum, which doors are opening again. Well, uh, we use pop up Slack. So we use Slack as a one off in rare circumstances, we're launching something we do want to be all readily available. There may be organizations that want to create a pop-up mental health channel on Slack or something where medical professionals like you, Michael, are available, Slackable. There's more and more therapy moving toward apps and texting and creative formats, but companies could consider pop-up solutions that aren't Mm -hmm. long-term, but that help everybody come together and navigate times like these in the face of uncertainty. Because again, there's going to be some piloting and some brainstorming about business how do we keep business as usual or business as pivoted? And then there's also just going to be, how do we together navigate the total uncertainty of one day to the next of having no freaking clue which way this goes? What we've gone to is remote patient monitoring. And so so the patients who are sort of elderly and medically frail, having them come into the hospital on a frequent basis or the doctor's office is a, is a, is a major problem. Sometimes they don't have uh, transportation and those, and those kind of things. So, so we're moving to re- remote patient monitoring and, and, and so in the behavioral health space, in fact, I work with a company named Neuroflow that does uh, sort of evidence-based measurement of the things you're describing. And the reasons I work with them is because it's hard. We have way too few behavioral health professionals in the world, really. There's a huge workforce issue. So we have to find, we have to leverage technology to communicate in a, in an easy way that folks are familiar with on their phones that, that will allow them to journal, to talk about their mood, their sleep and all those kind of things. So we're doing that in healthcare for behavioral health. And what you're, what you're describing to me and I hadn't thought of is that businesses should be thinking about remote worker monitoring, but not in a big brother kind of, are you doing your work, but do you need, do you have the resources that you need? How are you, you know, are you getting enough sleep or how much time are you spending? Whatever it is, that lack of connection that you would get in a real world um, that people are stressed or having problems, they can connect with others and easily move that down the scale a bit. That's going to be, maybe it's going the wrong direction here, but that's harder to do. Uh, you know, and so, so you're absolutely correct. So, I mean, at least I think you're, I think you're onto something is that the organizations who are able to stay connected, not just on the work perspective, but also on the level of anxiety and, and surveilling, you know, so the other thing that that, that is coming to mind is what if large portions of an organization in that under medically, uh, required quarantine, how do you get them back in the workforce? How do you, you know, all those things you need to know and, and, and how is that communication, communication occur? Oh, and there's, there's been so many articles about just the stress of self-quarantine and I'll put how to self-quarantine in the show notes. Cause I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've probably listened to that or read about that. But also I, I want to add here that 
in, in terms of the shift from victim to hero, do yeah. not wait for your organization or if you are the entrepreneur, somebody to invite you to this type of thing if it doesn't exist. This is actually a time for you to raise your hand and say, we need this and I'm happy to, to take the take the lead on it. And I'm happy to pilot something. And you can pilot in small groups before you roll it out more broadly. But sometimes people are waiting. Oh, I wish my company was doing X, Y, Z. It's it's not going to be like that. If you have an idea, start it. And if your company says no, do it externally. I guarantee you're going to, you can create a mastermind as weird as that sounds among your friends or your peers or people who are in a similar situation to you because we all have a different setup of how our jobs work. And this podcast was geared more toward the information economy. And we just don't have the time or the expertise to go into pivoting around a pandemic for Uber drivers, you know, or for people who are in a different situation or they have to go into work to make their, their salary or their income. And even I was thinking about momentum, you know, I'm thinking like this is a community for heart-based business owners and we're we're always talking like the course that's running right now, Pivot to Profit. And, you know, now it's, it's the community itself may shift. Like together, we all need to think about this. And, and, and like, so even this question of leading through and around, it's you're leading yourself, you're leading your family, you're leading, um, leading by being, like actually by, and, and part of it, Again, without saying we can know, just creating that forum. So how do we discuss what do you need on the internal side? What, how can we be helpful to each other on the external side? And all that meditation and mindfulness stuff that gets woven in and has now gone mainstream is actually really important here. I remember when I first met Michael, he's taught me a lot about living in the moment. And I used to have a lot of fear around relationships. And he introduced me to this term, future tripping. So if there was a time where I would wonder, like, where is this going? You know, I got I learned pretty quickly that was never going to work with him. But he would uh, he we would both acknowledge or call out if the other one was kind of like future tripping, and that would be another tool here. Is you want to have contingency planning and creative thinking during a time like this. But if you find yourself future tripping about the domino effect of worst case scenarios, that's a time to say we actually don't know. And to land on we don't know is okay. That's probably as good as it's going to get right now in the face of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, not knowing is a state of being, right? So it's, so I think that it's been getting comfortable right now. We're, we're living in this ambiguity and, and I want to go back to sort of discussions around leadership. I, Leaders who can deal with ambiguity and lead in that, so whether it be economic ambiguity and uncertainty or the current situation, those are leaders who are, I think, are going are gonna to come out on top and, and hopefully are, are leveraging those skills to mitigate risk, to have some leadership courage and take risks that uh, are calculated at the same time, are interesting and in piloting the things that we've just described, because there's a necessity there. Uh, but I think the folks who, you know, and if folks are struggling with that, uh, they need to think, I think, 
I want to say this carefully, is that it, th- this is pressure testing the system. I'll put it that way, yeah. right? So whenever there's an economic downturn, whenever there's you know these kind of events, it pressure tests the system. And, and companies are going to come to realize those who had a binder on their shelf that said digital emergency plan, whatever they're calling it, right? And it's been sitting there for however many years. Now they're pulling it off the shelf. It's going to get pressure tested to see whether or not it actually is real life. And, and I also want to encourage, so as part of emergency preparedness, you have the different cycles of disasters. So part of it is the preparedness part and there's the mitigation of, of what's going on. And then there's recovery stage. And I think I, I'd like to also, I think we can talk about this at some other date, is as this as this will subside, like all things do subside in, in, in the infectious disease world, what do we learn? How are we going to be better uh, next time? Uh, that's important. There, there's, it's important for us not to have a short-term memory loss in the future. The companies who survive, again, the ones that are going to stay active and viable in this also need to figure out what did they learn, what worked, what did not work, and then fold that into the fabric of the organization so that they're more resilient in the future. And we need to build, you know, just like we need to build resilient communities, we need to build resilient businesses or, you know, resilient, I should say, resilient individuals. The things you were mentioning is, is you know, sort of helping with resilience. Business themselves have to find what is, what is, you know, what does like a business meditation look like? You know, how does, how does getting grounded, how do, all those things that we do as individuals right. to potentially ward off uh, what's going on, how does a business do the same thing? Because it is a living, breathing organism. And, right, and we were talking about leading leading through ambiguity, the, the word blaring in my mind comes from Penny Pierce's book, Transparency, is, you, you know, I think it's important to consult the experts, like you said right at the beginning, and also be transparent. It's not, it's not to pretend you have it all figured out. That would be inauthentic and inaccurate. So there's a certain amount of transparency, transparency and vulnerability, and those people, whether as individuals or business owners who have practiced those things, have an advantage even on that front. And the whole point of Nassim Taleb's work, Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, is anti-fragile is not just you're you're not just resilient, it's it's organisms or entities that gain from disorder. So as we close this out, and we should definitely do another one. Part of the question, I love your reflection questions, is sort of what happened, what do we learn when it's time to reflect, what worked, what didn't, and what do we need to build into the system for next time? Part of this is also saying, what are the opportunities here? And again, not to be opportunistic, not to become like the ambulance chasers of whatever industry we're in, but to say, you know, there are people in real estate who, when a downturn like 2008 happens, some people lost their homes and other people like dove in. Now, there's a lot of conversation we definitely don't have time for around structural uh, inequality and, and privilege and all kinds of things are really messed up about a lot of the systems that I'm talking about. But to the extent that you can shift into that hero mode and say, things, all hell could break loose, all things could get paused. But there, when that happens, at least in the US, our economy is structured in a way that there are still opportunities there. If you have the courage to go against what your reptile brain is telling you to do if that makes sense. Um, so I think 
that's just something to consider is, you know, some, I had some friends saying, okay, the stock market's so low, everything's on sale. Now that's only an option if you have cash reserves and you're not worried about losing the roof over your head and you need to keep your cash liquid. So I guess I just throw that out because, um, that's the advanced mode, I guess. <laughs> it's going from resiliency to actually actual anti-fragility and planning. How does my business and career thrive when the economy is good? And even if it's not happening right now, and this is the time of more fear and uncertainty, but let's say in the, ne- in the next 10 years, how would it thrive if this kind of thing were to happen again? And you can build toward that with a long-term in mind while still asking, and how do we lift up uh, everybody around us and our families and people who may not even have the privilege of asking that question. Yeah. At the risk of making this a little bit longer, if you'll give me a couple of seconds here, I just want to do build. it. And then, and then we're done. It's like our, our nuggets that of, <laughs> sure. of all so, this thing, what you want people to. Yeah. So, so just something Jenny, you said before about uh, the transparency and I forget the trust that in organizations, you know, I think it's important for folks to, to look at Amy Edmondson's work around psychological safety. She's done some great studies uh, over decades and she publishes in Harvard Business Review and other journals. You know, I think as you were saying that, I think organizations uh, are going to have to look at their, how, what their safety around psychological, meaning to tell the truth, to be truth tellers about what's going right and what's going wrong. I just want to put that out there. I think that that's something leaders need to be aware of is as things get stressed, people go back to the reptile brain that you mentioned. That's what, that's why I was going there. Right. And so everybody has stressors and, and, you know, but you need to build an organization that is, that has enough psychological safety that people can share concerns, especially in healthcare. We deal with that all the time, right? We want, we want to keep the patients safe, but you want to keep your business safe too. So we want to make sure that as we go through this pressure testing, that there's enough psychological safety in the organization that people feel comfortable bringing up real problems um, and not saying, well, they're not important enough because this other thing is happening. No, those problems are important and they need to be brought up to the fore for leaders to manage. So that was the only thing that made me- Great the whole Yeah, No, it's so, good. And I'm going to tack on, by the way, psychological safety is a big topic within organizations now. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And this goes back to self-compassion because some of us don't even create psychological safety in our own mind. Yeah. And how do I know? Cause that's what I did for my whole life until, you know, I turned 30 and started meditating. But if you are creating an environment in your own mind where you can't even be fearful, vulnerable, uncertain, uncertain, imperfect, et cetera, that's the first place to give yourself a break and cut yourself right. some slack. And then it goes all the way up to the organization. So, okay. So, so, what do we, so what do we give to the people who are at the end of the yeah, podcast club? The end of the podcast club. <laughs> Shout out, Neil. <laughs> Shout out, Neil. Exactly. Well, you know, look, I think I've said it 45 times. So at least if you, you know, we're, we're I don't know, doing something else. And you, look, it's, it's moving from victim to participant or in the best of all worlds, a hero, right? And so how can you be a, a hero for your business, no matter what size it is. How can you be a hero for your family and your friends? And, but also you talked about community earlier, right? The different um, issues in the community. How can you be a hero for the community? And so, you know, when you, if there's nothing else you can figure out what to do, look to the left, look to the right, look for a elderly family member or a neighbor that may not feel safe going out and getting groceries. It's something that is so life-sustaining and just offer and say, hey, I'm going to go out and get your groceries. Don't worry about it, right? Um, and then lastly, just stay informed and, you know, and, and help others who 
maybe are stressing out and uh, be compassionate to yourself. I, I don't know. That, I don't know if that's. I uh, love that. I love both of those pieces of advice. And thank you. You, uh, you summed it up so well. If you've made it to the end of the podcast club, we're so grateful that you're here. I hope this was helpful. We are winding our way around this topic, and and reach Michael out. And I, I mean, yeah, reach out to me. I mean, I'm happy to talk to people. You know, reach and, out to Michael. I'm going to put Michael's all his info in the show notes, along with a lot of articles that cover a lot of what we talked about. Probably not even all of it. Um, there's free up founder time and momentum. If you want more sort of behind the scenes and even just the practical side, we didn't get we didn't get too deep in the nitty gritty how and tactics. Right. And as you were talking and giving those fantastic closing actions and questions, Michael, it occurred to me that right now, questions are maybe the most powerful thing that you can do is just reframing the questions. And I just love how you're asking, we can ask ourselves every day, like what's, how can I move from victim to hero today? That's all you need to do. And how you put it, just look to the left and right. That's, that's okay for now. And you will be shown. So part of the, the work I'm always talking about is you know, Penny Pierce and the Penny and Jenny show and, and, and Tosha Silver on surrender. This is really a time that we surrender. We say, I don't know what's going to happen to my career or my business. And I can't know. So I surrender. I turn this over. Show me the next step. And we can ask to be shown the next step. And we can ask to be shown what one next step is in the highest good for all involved at any given yes. time. And if you're sick, you might stay home. If you have a family, you know, you're going to make different choices and it's going to be different every day. So those are my personal practices that help me in times of uncertainty and anxiety where ultimately I remember, oh yeah, I'm not in control here. I surrender and I wait to be shown. 100%. Thank you. Thank you so much. Michael. My pleasure. This was so, so much helpful. fun. So much so, fun for yeah. such a dark topic, but yes, I know. I but know. That's all. Yeah. And um, if you're listening and you made it to the end of the podcast club, keep us posted. Like we can do a Q&A episode. You can submit questions at uh, pivotmethod.com slash ask. And if we get enough of them, Michael and I, I can, I think I could speak for you, Michael, but I could sure. say we'd be happy to jump back on and do another one of these and keep the conversation going around maintaining business continuity and pivoting in career and business around a pandemic. So just, in the name of fighting isolation. Yeah, right? fighting it's, isolation. You're not and out there this, by yourselves. We're here. Exactly. And making this an evolving conversation as information and events continue to unfold because this is just one moment in time. So if it's helpful, I was also conscious before we hit record, oh, there's so much out there. Are we just contributing to the noise? So hopefully you got something out of this that's different from what you're seeing and hearing every day or brought you a little bit of comfort. If, if that's all that it did, and then I... I very thankful for that. And I'm so too. thankful for you, Michael. And I'm thankful for you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List a curated twice-monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. And connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake.
Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always?